Father, I thank you that this moment right here is about Jesus. It's not about First Baptist. It's not about me. It's not about any individual in this room or any other agenda. It's about Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that because it's all about Jesus, we with open hearts can simply look to Jesus and see him for who he is. And that's exactly what we're asking to do. As we look at this passage of scripture, Lord, about a paralyzed man who was weak, who was unable to heal himself or fix his deepest problems. When he looked to Jesus, he was no longer paralyzed. He was healed and strong and raised up for your glory. And would you do that in us this morning? Every paralyzed place of our hearts, everywhere that we're stuck in our sin, in our brokenness, in our stories, Lord, let let us look to Jesus today and raise us up by his power. And Father, I pray that not only for ourselves, but our brothers and sisters in this community and around the globe who are gathering for the glory of Jesus to be raised up by his power. I I pray for Dave and Catherine Hodge, Lord, provide all their needs Give them all that they need, Lord, in the mission field to be supplied in every good way for the health and well-being of their own souls and family, but also for the advance of the gospel in Malawi. Lord, I pray for those who are part of this church that you may be stirring to take a trip this fall to join them in that mission. Lord, make that trip clear. Plan it out. We know you already have in advance. And let us be open-handed, open-hearted to your spirit's leading and how we best serve Dave and Catherine and their family. Lord, we look forward to seeing what you're going to do. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. All of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the next passage of Scripture in our study of Mark. Believe it or not, it's Mark chapter 2. We're out of chapter 1, guys, in record time. So here we are in Mark chapter 2, studying the the book of Mark as we've been doing. And I'd like to begin by just asking this. Do we have any, any Superman fans in the house? Any fans of Superman here? Good. I'm not going to offend you by what I had to have to say next, because apparently we don't have any Superman fans here. Here, Here's the story. I I have always struggled to completely enjoy the Superman movies. And and it's because I just can't quite believe something about them. And and I don't mean, I, I find it hard to believe that Superman can fly or that he can turn back time or that he can see through walls. Oh, that's all well and good and easily believable for me. What I can't get over is that somehow he puts on a pair of glasses and no one around him knows who he is. It drives me nuts. The whole movie, every scene with Clark Kent, nerdy in his glasses, with bulging biceps still there in his clothes, I just get worked up. Like, I want to yell at the characters who are there acting as if they could see a picture on the front page of Daily Planet of Superman standing in all of his glory, held by Clark Kent and not do the math. It's a pair of stinking glasses, people. It just drives me nuts. 
it feels like the people around him have just made up their minds. They're going to be blind to his real identity. And they're so blind, they refuse to recognize who's standing right in front of them. And the reason I bring that up is because our text today has a very similar dynamic. And I warn you in advance, I might get worked up again. Because we're here at the beginning of the earthly ministry of Christ. And in a sense, what we have been discussing is that Jesus has a secret identity. And what I mean by that is that even though no one really around him realizes it yet, he is the Messiah of God. And even more than that, he's God in the flesh. And if you're here last week, you might remember that what Jesus is doing during these first scenes is carefully revealing his true identity to the people who are around him. He knows that he has to be careful about revealing who he is because there's an entire multitude of people in Israel who are just ready to hear that he's the Messiah and the King of Israel, and they will take him by force. We already saw that from John 6 last week. They'll take him by force, make him king, and then they will get way ahead of their own king and form an army and try to overthrow the Roman Empire. And Jesus didn't come to earth during this time to overthrow the nations. This time he came to earth, Jesus came on a mission to go to the cross It's not going to be until his second coming that Jesus rules with a rod of iron over all the nations and overthrows, in a sense, the world by the power of his will. So here's what's happening. He's strategically making his true identity known, but he's doing it in a way that will also preserve his mission to the cross. And in our text this morning, what we see is that Mark is showing us from the very beginning of the earthly ministry of Christ, when Jesus was revealing the truth about his real identity, the truth that he is God, he's making it abundantly clear. And yet there are still people to this very day who are blind to the point that they refuse to recognize who Jesus is, who's standing right there in front of him. And so with that in mind, let's read our passage and try to see what I'm saying in advance. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, kicking up his heels. That's in the original language of the Bible. No. (laughs) So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of God for us this morning, church. And I hope you see what I was saying about Jesus strategically revealing his identity. Only God can forgive sins, right there in the middle of the text. And after that, Jesus then sets out to prove he has authority to forgive sins. What's he saying? I am God. I have the authority of God. And that's the main point that Mark is actually making in this passage. The main point of this is that we would see here at the beginning of Christ that this king who came saying the kingdom of God is at hand can say the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is close enough for you to reach out and touch him. I'm the king. Who would be the king of the kingdom of God? God And so Jesus claiming to be king of the kingdom of God is claiming to be God from the very beginning of the gospel of Mark. And here he's doing the same thing. So Mark is emphasizing again that Jesus is God. But even though that's the main point that Mark is trying to make in this passage, there are actually two really important truths that are closely related to that main point. The first truth is this. Through his identity as God... Jesus wants to forgive sins. And the second truth that's closely related to the main point of Jesus as God is this. Jesus forgives the sins of those who have faith in him as their only hope. And so those three incredibly important truths are embedded in this powerful text. That's what is being revealed to us about Jesus in this passage of scripture. So when you take those three connected truths together, they actually give us our big idea for this morning. So here's the big idea for today. As God in the flesh, Jesus wants to forgive the sins of those who have faith in him. As God in the flesh, Jesus wants to forgive the sins of those who have faith in him. In Him. And church, my prayer for every one of us this morning is that our great God would graciously remove any blindness we have to those amazing truths. My prayer is that with eyes wide open today, you would see that Jesus is God. And with eyes wide open today, you would see that Jesus, as God, has chosen to use His authority as God to forgive sins because He wants to forgive sins. For those who have faith in him, that is who Jesus is. And may the Holy Spirit give us eyes to see that that is who Jesus is. So here's how we'll look at our big idea this morning. I'm going to go back through our text. I'm going to take those three parts of the big idea and we'll just look at those three connected truths, one truth at a time from this text. So you can see where I'm drawing it from out of the word of God. Number one, Jesus is. God. Jesus is God. Remember, this is the primary takeaway from the text. He is God in the flesh. So let me just show you a little bit. Let me dig into how Jesus is making that known because it's really important and it's kind of a subtle way for us to see the deity of Christ. Look back at verses five through seven. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Stop right there. The scribes that are here in this room, they actually become a part of the group of people who later on will have Jesus put to death. And they'll have him put to death because they charge him with blasphemy. That's what he becomes found guilty of by the leaders of the Jews. He's accused of blasphemy. It starts right here at the beginning of his ministry by these religious leaders. And the scribes were religious leaders who were ex experts in the Old Testament. They were ancient Bible scholars. They were the ones who were called on to explain the passages of scripture that nobody else could explain. So these experts in the Bible are sitting there watching Jesus. When they hear him say, this man's sins are forgiven, they immediately all jump to the same place. They believe he is blaspheming because he's claiming to be God. And that accusation of blasphemy, notice it hinges on this question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's a really good question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And if you're thinking through this with me, you may kind of have a knee-jerk reaction like I would have, which is this, well, can't pretty much anyone forgive sins? I mean, even Jesus commands us to forgive sins. So can't anyone forgive sins? So in a way... Yeah, anyone can forgive the sins of people who wrong against us or who sin against us. As a matter of fact, I would even go so far as to say this, only the person who's been sinned against can actually forgive that sin. You with me? Okay, well, if you're not, let me just give you a scenario. Imagine you're out in your front yard, you're raking your leaves. Your neighbor marches over unprovoked, grabs the rake from you and breaks it over his knee and throws it down to the side. Did that ever happen to you? I really hope not. Are you with me still? I hope so. But in this scenario, can you imagine that some random strangers riding his bike down the sidewalk and he sees this take place. And he sees this guy, come take your rake, break it over his knee, throw it down to the side. He pulls over, he gets off his bike, he walks up and he looks your neighbor in the eye and says, don't worry, friend, I forgive you. And then goes on his way. How would you feel in that moment? You feel like, who in the world are you, bro? He didn't sin against you. You you, you can't forgive his sin on behalf of me. He sinned against Me. And so, yeah, anyone can forgive sin, but only the person who is sinned against can forgive the sin against him. And what Jesus is doing in this passage, I hope you notice, is being really specific. He's acting as if somehow all of this man's sins are against him. And since all of his sins are against him, Jesus is acting as if he has the authority to actually pronounce all of those sins forgiven. That's why the scribes are upset. Who but God has that authority? You see, the scribes know something that the Bible teaches. And the thing the Bible teaches is this. Every sin is ultimately a sin against God. Let me show you a passage of scripture just to let you know what I mean. An example of this is in Psalm 51, verses three and four. Psalm 51, three and four, David is writing and he says this, for I know my transgressions 
and my sin is ever before me. Now look at he's speaking to God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David wrote this psalm after being confronted about his adultery with Bathsheba and then his attempt to cover up his adultery by having Bathsheba's husband killed. So you've got murder, you've got adultery, you've got deceit, you've got a story of terrible sin against multiple people. But in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David comes before God and he says by the Spirit's leading that ultimately God is the one that he had sinned against. And church, this teaches us something about sin that's related to what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 2. It teaches us that sin is always primarily against God. Every expression of sin is a departure from the commands of God. That means all sin is ultimately an expression of sin against God. Now listen, that doesn't mean that our sin against people isn't horrible. I hope you know that actually deepens the horror. The the sin that we commit against people is even more horrible than many of us realize because we're never just sinning against that person. We're sinning against them and ultimately sinning primarily against God. For instance, telling a lie to your classmates isn't just a sin against your classmates. It's a sin against the God who commands us not to lie and to tell the truth. Taking something that belongs to someone else isn't just a sin against the rightful owner of that property. It's a sin against the God who commands us not to steal. Every act of sin is an expression of our heart's refusal to honor God as God. It's a refusal to acknowledge him as our God and we then begin to act like our own little G gods. And since we're acting like our own little G gods, disregarding the rule and rules of God in our life, ultimately sin is an attempt to usurp the throne of almighty God that is in all our hearts. We are acting as rebels And we are acting as violent assaults against a holy God every time we sin. That's why hell is the appropriate punishment for sin. God isn't overreacting. We have sinned with every act of sin primarily and ultimately against a holy God. And we have refused his rule over our lives and essentially tried to overthrow him as king. It is rebellion. It is cosmic tyranny when we sin. And hell then becomes the just payment of sin against a holy God. And because that's true, church, it means that unless we are forgiven by God, we aren't ultimately forgiven. You you realize our parents, our children, our spouse may forgive us for the specific ways that we have wronged them, but they cannot, by virtue of their grace to us, 
forgive us on behalf of God. We aren't truly forgiven until God forgives us. And before I move on and get back into what Jesus is saying in this text, I don't want to move past this too quickly. We need to realize this, church, the greatest problem facing every person in this world today is that we have individually sinned against a holy God. And that means the greatest threat to every person in this world today isn't political turmoil, it isn't economic collapse, it isn't climate disaster, it is the just payment for our sin against a holy God, which is eternity in hell. And that means then that the greatest need of every person in this world is forgiveness of our sins. We have sinned against God, so we aren't ultimately forgiven of our sin unless and until we are forgiven by God himself. And that, that dynamic is why the scribes believe that Jesus is blasphemous because he looks at this paralyzed man and he declares, all of your sins are forgiven, son. And he knows exactly what he's doing. Look at verse eight. And immediately Jesus Perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. He knows what's going on in all of them. And he says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that, now look at this, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Do you see this? Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. And do you notice this as well? He doesn't correct them, right? He doesn't say, I'm not blaspheming. I'm not claiming to be God. Let me set the record straight. I'm not saying I'm God. He doesn't do that at all. He goes the opposite way. He doesn't say, you're wrong for thinking that only God has the authority to forgive sins and to declare somebody completely forgiven. He says, you want some proof that I have that kind of authority, the authority of God? Let me show you something. You can't see the effect of my miraculous forgiving power in the life of this man. So I will show you the effect of my miraculous power in this man. The whole reason he does the miracle is to show and prove that he indeed is God. And that's the primary significance of this text. Jesus is revealing his true identity as God. And before we pass on, I just, I want to ask, and you don't need to answer this out loud. Do you believe that Jesus is your God? Are you, are you living? Are you living like you believe that Jesus is your God? Let me ask you this. Is your life a life of worship intended to display the worth and goodness and glory and Godhood of Jesus as your God. Listen, friends, Jesus is God 
And it is important for us in a setting like this to affirm that Jesus is God, but to sit in a setting like this and affirm that Jesus is God is at some level a charade if we leave these doors and live like we believe that we are our own gods. Jesus is God, and the call is then to live like Jesus is God, to worship him with all of our lives. And if you want something that will stir your heart to worship Jesus as your God this morning, I can't wait till you get to point number two. So how about we get there? The second point of our big idea is this. So Jesus is God. Here's the second, here's the second point. Jesus wants to forgive sins. Jesus wants, he's God in the flesh. He wants to forgive sins. Look at verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven. Now, stop right there. Here's why I read that section. We do not know everything that was going on in this man's heart. Uh, Perhaps he associated his paralyzed condition to some sin or multiple sins in his life. That's, that's, that's a possibility. In the first century, many Jews believed that sickness was directly the result of a person's sin. We, we don't know. That may have been going on in his heart. And it's very possible that if that was in his heart, we know Jesus clearly from this text knows what's going on in the hearts of people in this room. We don't know that though. We don't see that. Mark under the Spirit's leadership doesn't bring that out in our text. But here's what we do know, and here's what the Spirit has preserved in this text. There's one person in this room who brings up the idea of forgiveness. And it wasn't the paralyzed man, and it wasn't his friends, and it definitely wasn't the describes, the the describes, (laughs) the disciples, or the describes. If you're new around here, I make up words all the time and I use them wrongly. So you'll have to learn the vocabulary if you stay around. And here's the story in this massive crowd of people who all want to be healed of their sickness. There's one person who changes the subject from physical healing to deep and final forgiveness. Who brought up forgiveness? Jesus. Jesus brings it up. You see that? He's not reluctant. He doesn't have to be convinced. This man does not have to write a long, detailed description of all the things he's done and persuade Jesus to show him forgiveness. He doesn't say a word about forgiveness. Jesus brings it up because Jesus wants to forgive sins. It's why Jesus came to this earth. He came on a mission to seek and to save lost sinners like us. And that mission would take him all the way to the cross. You see, God forgives our sin, but he doesn't sweep it under a rug. He deals with sin and he dealt our sin at the cross. And the way God dealt with our sin at the cross so that he could forgive us and be right to forgive us, 
but also be a just judge who deals with sin by punishing it was by accepting Jesus as a sacrifice on behalf of sinners like us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Speaking of Jesus, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 12 through 14 says, But when Christ had offered, and it's talking about himself and his sacrifice at the cross, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, the offering of his life at the cross, the offering of himself as a sacrifice for sin, by that one offering, look at this, he has perfected for how long church all time those who are being sanctified he has forgiven completely all of your sin if you are trusting in him guys redemption and forgiveness may be a gift of God to us but they weren't free to Jesus they were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and Jesus had to suffer he had to die he had to endure the rejection of men and the punishment of God so that you and I could be forgiven and God could still be a just judge who punishes sin and because Christ was on the mission to the cross to endure this suffering listen to what he says before he goes to the cross John 10 18 he says this no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Do you see what Jesus is saying? To go to the cross and endure the punishment of God, the rejection of men, the pain and suffering that belong to every sinful person like you and me, Jesus had to die and he willingly chose to die. He knowingly stepped to the cross. He laid down his life by his own willful choice. Why? Because Jesus wanted to forgive your sin. This is one of those amazing truths about Jesus, church, that I pray the Holy Spirit would press into your heart. He wants to forgive all of your sin. Let that settle in for a moment. And let me tell you just a a quick story that I was reminded of this week. When I was in high school, My brother and I went out to eat with a group of friends after a basketball game. I've told you this story before, but you never remember any of my stories, so I feel fine (laughs) repeating this one. While we were in the restaurant after the basketball game, it started to snow really hard. You guys know I'm from Ohio, and so the snow's come in. It was snowing really hard while we were in that restaurant, and by the time we came out of the restaurant, the ground was completely covered with snow. 
So I thought I'd pull a move, and instead of driving out on the roads, I decided um, I'll take a shortcut through the mall parking lot that was right next to that restaurant. You see, the mall had been closed for a while, so there were absolutely no cars around. Maybe, maybe there might, I don't know, maybe there might be a donut in my future. I, I don't know, but, and donuts are when you spin around. Anyhow, as I was driving around the front of the mall, I, I must have been going too fast, far too fast. And I lost control of the car. My little brother was in there with me. And the star, car started spinning in circles there in the parking lot until it stopped spinning in circles on one of the only trees in the entire area, right? And immediately it's, it's hitting that tree. I'm looking over and it's hitting that tree on the side of the car where my br- little brother was sitting. Okay, so, so thankfully, and I, I know I never tell you the ends of my stories, and you wonder, what happened, Titus? I'll tell you, my little brother and I were completely fine, but the car was an absolute wreck, pun intended. It was completely undrivable. And those were the days before cell phones. And so I had to go walk around the mall to find the mall security office and call my dad. And with every step through the snow, all I can think of is how in this world am I going to explain to dad that I hit the only tree in the entire parking lot with my little brother in the car? Like, how will, how will I keep dad from being justifiably angry? I, I, I didn't know how, but I knew I had to call dad. So I called dad. He came. Uh, we looked around the car. I'm pretty sure that I avoided dad at all costs. So if he went to that side of the car to look at the damage, I went to the other side to act like I knew what I was looking at just to not have to face him. We called a tow truck driver. I can't remember clearly, but I'm pretty sure I offered to ride home with the tow truck driver so I didn't have to get in the car with dad. And we finally get home. It's late at night. Dad's out in the park or in our, our driveway. He's got to get the, tro- the tow truck driver squared away. He had to pay him and get that all settled up. And so I slipped off upstairs to go to bed and I thought surely he wouldn't wake me up. I just dreaded it. I did not want to face dad. So there I lay in my bedroom all in the dark alone with my thoughts and I began to think. My dad spent money he did not really have to get that car for me to drive. And I knew it was a sacrifice. And I knew it was probably really hard for him. And he wanted me to be able to play basketball so he didn't make me work the summer before so that I could help pay for that car. And I sat there thinking, Dad did all of that for me and how did I repay him? I hit the only tree in the entire parking lot, that's how. And I just thought, I can't go downstairs in the morning and face Dad. Like, I just can't do it. I can't look him in the eye. And it's not just, will he be mad? It's, I, I am so ashamed. I feel so guilty. It was so stupid. And that's when I heard dad's footsteps coming up the stairs. And I hoped, maybe he'll just pass my room. Maybe he'll just go off to bed. Maybe he'll forget that this ever happened. But he didn't. He, he came into the bedroom and he stopped for just a moment and he broke the silence. And he said, Titus, and I disguised my voice and said, there is no Titus in here. Um, and, and, and he didn't buy it. He said, Titus, 
I don't want you worried about that car. It's just a car. And I want you to know before you go to bed that I care way more about you and your little brother than I have ever cared or will about that car. He told me he loved me. I apologized. He said, I, am, I assure you, you're forgiven. There were consequences. <laughs> I didn't have a car for a long time, but I was forgiven. He went off to bed, and I will never forget to this day what it felt like as I lay in that bed and I listened to my dad walk down the hallway. I thought, man, my dad is the best. My dad is the best. He came to me and didn't make me go to him. He knew I was ashamed. And he knew I dreaded the next conversation. So he didn't make me bring it up. He walked to my room. He didn't distance himself. He didn't make me grovel. He didn't make me wait alone in the darkness and the silence. He came to me because he loves me. And he's the one who brought it up. And guys, in an infinitely greater way, that's what Jesus is like. And that has been my prayer this morning for all of us. That we would know that when we think about Jesus, our hearts should do this. Jesus is the best. He wants to forgive my sin. He wants to forgive your sin. And listen, I wanted to say this. I know there are some of us in this room who have messed up so many times. We cannot hardly believe that Jesus would want to forgive our sins. There are some people in this room who can't hardly at times bring yourself to pray because you feel so undeserving. There are some of you who wonder, how does Jesus think about me? How does Jesus feel about me? Surely he's out of patience. I've exhausted seven times, 70 times. I'm way beyond that. Listen, when you ask, how does Jesus feel about you? And you wonder, Lord, could you ever forgive me? Listen, he's the one who brought it up. He loved you before you ever loved him. He came to you when you couldn't go to him. He died for you while you were still sinning. Guys, the gospel is good news because Jesus wants to forgive. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. That's what I pray you see. That's what I hope causes your heart to rejoice because that's the point when Jesus transforms our life. What was the last thing that we read? And they glorify God and said, we have never seen anything like Jesus in church. We've never seen anything like Jesus. For the people who hold shame over your head because you have not been perfect. And for the people who judge you, who condemn you, who make you pay for the things that you've done. I am not. I am not. I am not saying that the Bible does not teach 
true consequence for sin. What I am saying is this. Jesus wants to forgive you. And that's the last thing we see. Number three, Jesus forgives those who have faith in him. Verse five, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their faith and it's on the basis of faith that Jesus offers forgiveness. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Guys, salvation and forgiveness come by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And like the paralyzed man who believed that Jesus was his only hope, we must come to Jesus in faith, believing he's our only hope. We can't make ourselves right with God. We cannot make up for our sin. We cannot overcome our brokenness and our own rebellion. We need Jesus. He's our only hope. And when that's the faith in your heart, the consequence is forgiveness of your sin. The result is forgiveness. And for those of you who are trusting in Jesus, but you still struggle with the idea that he has a list of the big ones, the worst of the worst that you can't quite get over and you can't quite forget. Some of you may have to live with the consequence of your sins for the rest of your life. There are Earthly consequences to our sins. Every forgiven sinner isn't released from jail or able to step back into the life the way it was, but hear the voice of Jesus to everyone who trusts in him. Son, daughter, I see your faith, not your failure. You're forgiven of all your sins. So stop laying in your failure. Rise up and walk in my love. It's the word of Jesus to you this morning, church. And I can't think of a more fitting way to end this time of study than to simply ask you this. Has there come a place in time in your life where you have placed your full trust in Jesus to do what only Jesus can do through his life, death, and resurrection to forgive your sin and to raise you up to walk in a brand new life. If you've never, never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, today is your day. And I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads with me and enter into a time of prayer. And you, if, if you do not know coming into this room that heaven is your home and that Jesus is your savior right now, would you call on Jesus in faith? Just in a simple prayer, would you confess that you have sinned against God and acknowledge that your sin, all your sin, has ultimately been sin against God? And there in a Simple prayer with your own words. Would you acknowledge your faith that you believe Jesus came to this earth to live the perfect life you failed to live, to die on the cross, the death you deserve to die as a payment, as a sacrifice for sin, 
and that he rose again from the dead so that he could raise you up to a brand new life. Acknowledge that right now in prayer before God. And then call on Jesus to save you. Jesus, save me from my sin. In every way I need to be saved from my sin. I'm trusting in you, Jesus. I'm trusting in you. And for those of you who are trusting in Jesus, but you still struggle to believe that he says, son, daughter, you are forgiven. Would you ask him to strengthen your faith? To believe that you are forgiven and cleansed by his power and grace. Lord, I thank you for Christ, for Jesus. There's no one like him. And I thank you that Jesus is God and may we always proclaim without shame that Jesus is our God. And thank you that by his authority, Christ has come to this earth on a mission to provide forgiveness of sin, all of it. And Lord, I pray that we would trust in Christ so that we would receive the benefit of Christ's forgiveness of sin. Help us to rise up and take these beds that we've been lying in for years, guilt and shame, that had power over us. Lord, help us to rise up and take them out and walk in a new kind of life today because of Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.